Well, peace be with you. Uh, I trust and hope that you came in relatively healthy. <laughs> it's tough times, I know, and um, please pray for each other. I am praying for you as well, <clears throat> and um, yeah, I pray for the staff and the leadership, and pray that um, people stay healthy and can manage these crazy, crazy times. Um, as we begin this morning, I'd like to share a little history, a little story with you um, that you may be fascinated by. On the afternoon of uh, May 26, 1828, a shoemaker in the town of Nuremberg, Germany, noticed a disheveled young boy wandering about in the tattered clothes in the streets. Uh, the boy carried nothing more than a letter stating uh, that he was the son of a deceased cavalry officer. And his name, the son, this boy's name, was Caspar Hauser. Uh, soon after he was, soon after this, he, he spent a little bit of time uh, in jail as a vagrant, and then uh, he was soon then taken in by a professor by the name of Dr. George Friedrich Dahmer, who taught Casper uh, how to speak. Um, after which, Casper, uh, once he learned how to speak, he claimed um, that he lived most of his life locked up in a dark, tiny cell just a, a few, mid, few meters long. Um, it was only given bread and water to eat. Um, and he, his only possession was a small carved wooden horse. Casper was soon uh, after this studied meticulously because he seemed to possess remarkable sensory abilities. Careful experiments revealed Casper uh, had acute eyesight and could virtually see in the dark. Where most people would look up at the sky at twilight and see a few stars, Casper could uh, pick out entire constellations. Uh, at 60 paces, he could distinguish berries of the different species that were clustered together. Uh, he could always distinguish people uh, coming simply by hearing their footsteps, even if he couldn't see them, of course. He could tell apart Apple, pear, and plum trees from a distance simply by smelling their leaves. Flowers, pungent flowers, strong smelling flowers like a rose, were so powerful uh, to his sense of smell uh, that he found them disgusting and they affected his nerves. He reportedly could smell dead bodies buried under the ground. And when he was walking around cemeteries, he would break out in violent sweats. Professors ran tests on Casper, and um, despite um, their disbelief that he did show incredible perception of magnetic fields, despite their attempts to deceive him, he could distinguish between the north and south pole of magnets when they were pointed at him, based on the north pole being, they would, it would draw him in and the south would blow on him and push him away. What was equally fascinating to scientists about Casper was how rapidly, after he was found and taken in, to normal society and culture, that he lost his sensitivity in all of these areas. His remarkable perceptive abilities in sight, sound, taste, smell, bodily sensitivity declined due to what seemed to be the immersion in the culture and society. Essentially, what those who documented this boy's existence, essentially the noise, the busyness, the saturation of comforts in his new surroundings seemed to, over time, desensitize him. And they were shocked at actually how quickly it did so. 
It's a fascinating story, right? When I read about Caspar Hauser, uh, I couldn't help but wonder about the ways we as Christians, we might be constantly desensitized in our spiritual and emotional sensitivities due to the noise, the busyness, the comforts, the routines of our own culture and our own society. I wonder a lot these days, and I've wondered over the last couple of weeks especially, as I've thought about this passage, I wonder a lot about the possible loss of awareness and the lack of sensitivity in, the, in our hearts, like the condition of our hearts and, the, and our, ability, our ability to see ourselves accurately because, well, we're just so often swept up in the tide of mindless rituals and rhythms, some of which are perfectly fine and appropriate. And a large, what I realize, a large and an important part of the Christian life is learning how to gain a kind of spiritual and emotional sensitivity. In other words, learning how to notice when and where you're drifting. That's what it means, I think, in the journey of discipleship, is to to notice these things. What's going on inside you? Becoming someone who can reflect and take stock of where you're at. What's bubbling up? uh, Where there might be incongruence in your life? Who are you becoming as a Christian? Not just what you're doing, but actually who are you becoming? And are you able to actually see yourself accurately? You see, the story in front of us today uh, that we just read, it's a famous story. For many of you, you've probably heard or read it many, many times. It's documented in all the various Gospels that we have. And so, but... It's a fascinating story, but it's a troubling story. It's troubling because, of course, we see Jesus angry, and a lot of us don't know what to do with that. We're, we, we, we don't like the angry Jesus. We like the kind, meek, and mild Jesus. Um, but this is the Jesus that is angry. Um, but it's incredibly important because that anger of Jesus, it tells us something. It tells us a story. There's something about looking at Jesus as angry, <laughs> And saying, why? And what's, it, what's going on with him and inside of him? And how does that affect me and my walk as a Christian? It tells us that Jesus is trying, I think, to wake us up to the all too familiar spiritual numbness and spiritual blindness that I think can happen to any of us, all of us. We can all fall into it. Uh, many of the people in this temple scene, particularly the religious establishment, and the leaders of that day had fallen into a, an all-too-familiar pattern of hiding behind rituals and religious rhythms. Um, but actually, spiritually speaking, they were deeply embedded in hypocrisy, deeply embedded in spiritual, dead orthodoxy. When you look at the story closely, and many of you probably have before, what do you notice? Is it this? Is it just, okay, Jesus is angered because business and banking has no business being in the church, right? Like, commerce has no business being in the church building or in church services. We, we shouldn't have coffee shops in our church buildings. Is that our takeaway? I think if we study it, we look closely at it, it's far deeper than that. I think getting into the story a bit here... You'll notice Jesus and his disciples are heading into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. If you're not familiar, just really quickly, the Passover was this yearly ritual uh, in which Jews would travel into Jerusalem 
to visit the temple to offer animal sacrifices for sin and recount and celebrate the history of when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And um, the culture of the temple and the culture of his people, uh, at least from Jesus' eyes, have certainly lost sight of the heart of God. There's certainly, you know, the Passover was this celebratory thing. I mean, archaeologists say that roughly at the time of Jesus, Jerusalem probably had uh, let's say f- roughly 50,000 residents living inside of it. At the time of the Passover, they predict that there probably 150,000 people visited. So to keep it in context, the scene would have been electric and charged. And Jesus comes in and he notices something that so deeply breaks his heart. Something that really bothers him. He notices that the culture has missed the point and the heart of God. To understand that, um, you have to go back to places like Leviticus 5, because I know we all read that a lot this week. Um, Places like Leviticus 5, when these ritual sacrifices were established. And it's in there. um, And and I I don't make fun of these passages. Some of us do read those passages to learn, and that's wonderful um, some of these passages are difficult for us to read, but they're incredibly important in understanding the emotions of Jesus. Because it's in Leviticus 5, you'll see there uh, that these ritual sacrifices were established, and you can read about how God made gracious provisions for people in various circumstances. So, for instance, he, he's announcing to Moses in that passage that uh, for the sacrifice of sin, uh, to atone for this sin, you need to bring a spotless lamb. But if you can't, God says, if, if someone can't afford a lamb because lambs are expensive, well, in, in that situation, in that case, you can bring two turtle doves, right? Or t- two pigeons. If you can remember Luke, I think it's Luke, uh, Luke's version of Jesus' birth narrative, he talks about how Mary and Joseph, that's what they offered up. There's two turtle doves. If, if they can't afford two turtle doves or two pigeons... God goes even further. And he says that, well, in that situation, if they can't afford that, they could, they could even offer up one-tenth of ephah, of flour, which is basically 10 pounds. It's fascinating, actually, when you look at it, because what you find there, and we, we sometimes, you know, Bible geeks and Bible nerds love to go to those passages, and the rest of us go, well, I don't know what to do with this. But what's fascinating when you look at it is you see the heart of God. And that is that the heart of God is, is that, yes, he wants us to be right with him. And our sin has not made us right. Our failures have separated us from God. But God cares so much and he doesn't, he doesn't miss or he's not somehow bypassing where people are at. He knows exactly where you're at. And the striking point that comes out in those passages is that he, he, he's totally sensitive to the economic constraints that people are under. He's doing everything possible to make provisions for them. But that's not the only thing. Um, It's just that it's not all. It's experiencing relief from shame and guilt isn't just for the religious or economic elite. It's also for people of all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities even. If you turn to Isaiah 56, we don't have time to explore it. I would love to. It's a fascinating passage, but you'll read how God envisions, and the prophet Isaiah speaking this, envisions a day when his temple the place where people come to meet with God, to experience God, to experience peace with God. He envisions the day when his temple is a place that welcomes the outcasts and the outsiders, the foreigners and those who have a tainted, sullied past, who want to seek and follow God, 
can come into the temple and they too can worship freely and they can be welcomed into God's family. And he declares this in Isaiah 56, 7 and 8. He says uh, that these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, this is the famous line that many of you know from the Gospels, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. Maybe your translation that you read says all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him because those besides those already gathered. The point is this, centuries later, Jesus heads into the temple grounds and he is quickly disturbed by something he witnesses. Now, here's the thing, to be clear, because I, wanna, I think that this is actually kind of important. There's no question that Jesus is angry. But I think sometimes we can read this passage and we can just imagine or picture Jesus just reacting, almost throwing a temper tantrum. And maybe you think, no, that's fine. Jesus is allowed to do whatever he wants. But actually, it's far more calculated than that. He's far more meticulous and controlled than you realize. Um, there's nothing uncritical about Jesus' outburst or anger. Actually, in Mark 11, verse 11, it describes this identical scene, um, but just previous to it, Mark lets us know that Jesus comes in uh, to uh, Jerusalem. He enters into the temple. He looks around. He sees that it's late in the day. He's taking stock of everything he sees, and he leaves, and he goes out to Bethany, and he sleeps on it. So my guess is, and this is conjecture, but from what I can see is Jesus actually takes notice of everything going on and then he goes out, sleeps on it, and thinks over what he might do about it. The following day, he travels back in and he heads into the temple. And so I just want you to realize in context as you picture this that Jesus is very much being calculated and methodical in what he does. I've done this a lot of times with my own kids. Like I can overhear them in the basement or whatever fighting. You know, and I'm not actually all that angered. I mean, I'm disappointed in their behavior, disappointed in what they're doing. And I methodically go down, you know, hey, what are you two doing? You know, to get their attention, knock it off. I know that's not very Jesus-like of me, but I'm not, I'm not out of control. I'm very much in control. I take a moment to stop and think, what, how can I get their attention and wake them up to what is inappropriate about this moment? And that is very much of what Jesus is doing in this scene. So the following day, he travels back into the temple. And this is what we read. In the temple, this is John 2 version. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Oh, Jesus has all these Old Testament passages in his head, like Isaiah 56, like Jeremiah 7. What has him so ticked? We're a smaller group this morning. Maybe we could make this dialogical. What has him so ticked? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Anybody brave enough? It's not rhetorical. At this point, the, uh, the sale of different animals, and we've already talked about Leviticus 5, so have that swirling in your imagination. 
But the sale of different animals and the exchange of currency had eventually evolved into really just a matter of mere convenience. You see, because most, some, if not all of these people, have traveled great distance to attend the Passover. It's really inconvenient to travel days and days carrying a turtle dove, right? Carrying little lammy with them. Something could happen. It was terribly inconvenient. So by this time, this was just mere convenience. And that's not all. The, the, the business and the banking was also, all, all, you know, it, it, all of it was a, like a matter of trying to help people out. They also were coming in to pay a yearly temple tax. Well, these people come from all sorts of different regions. They have different currencies. It's just like if you go to another country and you need to go straight to the bank to do what? Exchange currency. You need to get the right kind of currency to pay. So that in and of itself is not the issue. Although previously to this point, it had been, all of this had been done outside of Jerusalem next to the Kidron Valley. Eventually, it had moved closer and closer and closer. And now at this point, it's now in the temple. My point is none of these practices for convenience were immoral or corrupt by themselves. But what seems to be happening is the merchants and the money changers were charging inflated prices to drive wealth for the opulence of the temple, and were doing so despite the fact that many of these pilgrims traveling in were incredibly poor, and so it was exploitive and greedy. And that's not all. All this business and banking was strategically set up in the outer court of the Gentiles, and I, (laughs) forgive my poor, crude drawing, but I actually put together a little diagram for you just in case you're not familiar with how the temple was set up in that day. Um, but the way it was set up, there was a certain layers. There were layers to it, and, and, it, and it very much gets at the business of, of these, this outer court of Gentiles, which is it's not the people that were not of Jewish ethnicity. This was the kind of foreigners that Isaiah had described, and this was the kind of subtle religious elitism and classism at best, and it was outright racism at worst. If you look, if you can make sense of this, at the center of the temple was the most holy place, Right? where uh, the sacrifices were made, and only the priests could interact. Outside of that, you had Jewish men, the court of the Jewish men. Outside of that, the court for women. And what was the furthest, most outskirt court? Gentiles, non-Jews. This court, the the farthest court out, the court of Gentiles, is where this scene is taking place. Jesus didn't even make it very far before he got upset. And so he's in this outer court, when he sees all these money changers and he sees all this commerce and he is ticked off. Why? Well, because think about it. They were treating the the temple establishment deliberately, deliberately, out of mere convenience, filled the place where the Gentiles were gathering to pray and to worship. They filled it with commerce. They were treating them as second-class people and dehumanizing them. The very opposite of what Isaiah 56 talks about. Instead of it being, this is why when you read in like places like Matthew 21 that depict this scene, he he says, this this should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. What are you doing? I mean, think of it this way. We serve coffee here, yeah? Um, Imagine if, and I don't know, based on age or color or something like that, Imagine we segregated you in some way. 
and we put you in a certain section. We say, you, you, you can come here and worship. You're welcome to be here. If you're in this age bracket, you have to sit, though, in this area. And, oh, and in that area, we're going to sell T-shirts and swag, and we're going to put the sale of coffee and everything in your area. But these people over here, they won't have to experience any of that. How would you feel? You would feel, of course, dehumanized. You would feel, of course, like, oh, I guess my, my experience of worship doesn't matter that much. That's, of course, what's happening in this scene. And this is what has him so upset. Instead of openness in the temple, they were essentially hiding in the temple. And they did all of this shamelessly, and they were completely desensitized because, well, you know, they had the beauty of the temple and all the right rituals in place. And so they just assumed all was well. You know, Jesus enters into the temple grounds, and instead of hospitality, instead of contrition, Instead of praise to God, he sees what? What does he see? Consumerism, racism, classism, religious nationalism at its worst. It's not that Jesus was blind or shocked that these kinds of behaviors existed, but he's saddened, indeed, he's angered, right? By the fact that they're on display even in the house where people are meant to come and experience something very different. I mean, what you have here is Jesus doing what Jesus so often does, he's enacting the prophets of old. If you go and read places like uh, Jeremiah 7, I mean, it's almost explicit, explicit about things like this. I mean, this pattern is not new. I mean, here, I'll just read it to you. It does all the talking. For this is Jeremiah 7, the the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Meaning, you, you think because you have a beautiful, pretty building, everything's fine. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice one another, on, with one another... If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave over to your, uh, your fathers forever. Eventually down at the bottom, he talks about how they keep coming in and they're saying, we're delivered, we're delivered. Meanwhile, their life, their life is a wreck. And I love this line. He says, the Lord, oh, behold, he's watching. He sees it. He's not blind to the lack of congruence in your life. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's coming in, and he's just being Jeremiah all over again, and he's announcing the same things over again, just like the prophet Jeremiah did many, many centuries ago. So he enters in, he sees all of this consumerism, all this racism, classism, this weird, strange nationalism taking place inside of the church, and he's ticked off, justifiably so. And I think what we're seeing here is at the emotional and spiritual level, what I want to just sit with is you're seeing the sensitivity of Jesus. Do you think of Jesus being sensitive? Like, he's incredibly sensitive. 
I mean, he's not just highly intelligent, but he's also acutely aware. And he's very attentive to what's happening in the heart of his people and where they worship. Instead of honesty and wholehearted worship of God, he sees a a carelessness and a presumption about the state of their hearts. It's like, well, they've got rituals and they've got a great building and they've got all these great fancy things going on. Everything must be fine. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not fine. Spiritually speaking, at least the leaders of the temple and probably many other elites have been numbed by their surroundings and by the culture that they're marinating in. And instead of like opening up to God and others, they're hiding behind traditions. And Jesus has acted this way, not just to wake them up uh, through his criticism and his display of anger. I think Jesus is there to say, enough, enough. This is not going to continue anymore, and I'm here to create something new. Although he says it cryptically, uh, to be fair, because I don't think he expects any of the religious leaders to understand the severity of the situation, because they... Rightfully so, you know, he's, you, you have to imagine uh, this, is a, this is turmoil. I mean, he's whipping things. He's, he's running animals out of the temple, right? He's yelling, lecturing these money changers. And when the leaders approach him for all of this, you know, because they're coming to him going, what gives you the right, man, to come in here and act like this? What sign do you show us for doing these things, they say. And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It's so Jesus, right? It's so cryptic. It's not really an answer. It's just this strange kind of parabolic way of answering them. And of course, he's not just describing his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection, although he is saying that. What he's saying there is he's saying, you will not stand in the way of God doing what he wants, which is to make his loving presence his forgiveness and peace and new life for all those who want it. If you want it in him, you can have it, right? Jesus is declaring, I have the authority to come and do away with all these sacrificial practices that the Father established, that you have gotten terribly wrong and you've lost the point in them and I'm going to create a new temple, a new community of worshipers that worship me, Jesus. They don't worship a building, They don't worship a ritual, and they certainly don't worship an ethnicity. So what do you take away from it? Like That's kind of the question. I mean, it's a great story, and we put it in the least of these series because, uh, not in John's version, but in Matthew's version, I love what I think what's fascinating that I have missed so many times before is, you know, in the midst of all of this anger, he's flipping tables over, he's whipping little lambs and whatever. I don't even know what all he's doing. He's causing a huge scene. It's in Matthew's version in 21 that we read immediately in the midst of all of this anger. You know what happens? He goes over and he starts healing the poor. He somehow, in the midst of his outrage at the injustice and all the things going wrong inside of his house that's meant to be a place of prayer and sovereign, you know, worship of the sovereign God. All of that is supposed to be taking place. And he's so angry by it, but then he takes time to go over and he heals the blind and the lame. So what do you do with it? I mean, how does it affect the way you live and I live? 
I think the invitation here is to let Jesus' anger be what it is, first of all. And I think we need to notice how his sensitivity is meant to wake us up, to stir us up into honesty. Cultural rhythms, cultural norms that we're saturated in, some of which are totally fine. But they have this way of numbing us and carrying us into places that we just didn't see coming. And it happens even in here. You know, why do you come here? Why do you come to church? Why do you come to gather? Some of it's just ritual and you need it, and that's fine. But is there more to it? And do you put more thought and intentionality into why you come and why you gather? Uh, The scholar Gary Burge writes this. John 2, this passage that we just read, asks that I look with some care at my life and the life of my own religious house. It asks me to imagine what would happen if Jesus were to come here for a visit. Would he be outraged, outraged by our petty church battles? Would he be outraged between, by the battles between the choirs and the contemporary worship teams? We don't really have that here. <laughs> we're losing the worship team as we speak. Would he be outraged with the struggles over plans to build or not to build? Would he question words spoken that have lost meaning or words that take their meaning from the pundits of the secular arena? Is there a chance that he would interrupt things here? This passage assures us that Jesus knows entirely what is going on inside of us and our churches. Thus, we cannot rest comfortably thinking that his ire was reserved for the Jewish temple or for the liberals next door and not for us. And so as we come this morning, as I've been thinking about this all week, as we, as we come to our ritual, I mean, I, I end and the other pastors, whoever's preaching for that matter, we always end in ritual. And, and so much of our service is, is, is like just seeped in ritual, you know, purposely, intentional ritual. And that's okay. It's good. We're for that. But as we come to the pinnacle of our rituals, you know, meaning the Lord's table, communion, the bread, the cup, as we come to it, um, we, we need to do more than simply ask ourselves, when I come to worship, uh, do I lack hospitality? Yes, yes, we need to ask that. Or do I, when I come to worship, do I practice classism? Do I practice arrogance? Do, 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 do I practice racism? Do I practice ageism, sexism? I don't know. There's a lot of isms, I'm sure, out there. And they're all probably worth examining. Do I somehow exploit or neglect the poor? Maybe not here, but at my job or in my neighborhood. Those questions are are critically important, and they're worth us asking. But I think that this passage wants to do more. I, I, I think we need to say when we come here, we must be reminded to ask ourselves deeper questions like, who am I? Who am I becoming? Am I more excited about what God's doing in my life and what God is doing in my friend's life than the fact that the Bengals won the playoffs? Or, sorry, won a playoff game. (laughs) 
you know, which, by the way, congratulations. But like, do we notice that and say, oh, wait, that, that should probably be examined a little bit. Or a million other things like that. We should come in and ask ourselves, does my faith and my everyday practices line up? Quite simply, am I just here in church on a regular basis for the rituals? And they're good. They're meant to lead us into a place of just understanding and knowing and being encouraged. But they're also meant to invite us into examination. We come in every week to not only look to Jesus, the one who welcomes us to God by grace, but we we come in each week to also look at ourselves. We worship in such a deliberate way here at the Oaks to explore the ways that we've drifted. And to come to God in Christ for renewal. That's what, so much, that's what this series is so much about. It's, it's that we, we look at how God looks at the poor and the needy and the sick. We look at that in one sense to just be in awe of it. But also to look at ourselves and say, wait, am I being changed by his compassion and by his grace? Is it somehow softening me and opening me up to these areas? I mean, that's the invitation. Have we lost sensitivity over time? You know, so much of the church, and I've talked about this, I think, week one of this year, the, the church, culture in, in, in general, Christian culture in general, is being shaken to the core. Some of it's really sad, and, and some of it's a real gift. Because, as Hebrews talks about, when God shakes things, what will, what will remain? What, what will be left over? And are, are, are we becoming a community that's taking all this shaking that's happening and saying, where actually am I? And have I just been in the cultural drift for so long? And now is a real opportunity for me to examine myself. Has the culture we're saturated in numbed us and blinded us to our incongruence? You see, Jesus is worthy of our praise and our worship, but he's also worthy and demands our honesty. And, you know, when we, when we come to this, this bread that represents, it's a symbol of Christ's body broken for us, and, and this cup of wine that represents, you know, Christ's blood shed for us, we're doing more than just proclaiming the Lord's death. We're also stopping for a moment and evaluating ourselves. And I don't know what all needs to be evaluated in your life and saying, where is there incongruence? Jesus never expects us to come into our places of worship with perfection. But he does expect us to come into our places of worship and to be willing to be honest and just open and vulnerable before the bread and the cup each week. And so how we do it, I mean, lots of things, and I don't have the time to get into it all today, but I would just say as a general uh, rule of thumb, a, a great practice is to, like, do you have stillness quietness in your week. Like if you don't have the margins to stop, then you don't have examination in your life. And if you don't have examination in your life, honest examination in your life, then you will, you will be perpetually adrift in the culture. Last week, I was, or two weeks ago, I was in a class, an intensive class, for five days at a arch abbey in rural Indiana. 
and uh, it was a fascinating scene. I was, <laughs> I was surrounded by Benedictine monks. Um, no, I'm not tr- trying to become a Benedictine monk, um, just for clarification. But I, I, I do very much appreciate uh, their discipline to prayer and their discipline to work. Um, and I was learning in this class on an intense level <laughs> how to listen. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I thought I knew how to listen. No, I did not know how to listen. And, and now I'm just, I think I'm just now scratching the surface of how to listen to not only people, uh, but what is going on inside of me. And that was the point of the class. And I, I discovered so many things. I mean, I, I feel like I'm drawing lines, connecting dots um, that stretch back years, you know, between childhood and now, and things that stir in me and things, you know, reasons for why I think I might do things or the way, the way I react to things in moments and situations the way I do. And I mean, it was just so much from the unconscious coming to the conscious and being like, oh my gosh, and praying and all of this. And honestly, so much of it was that I had five days of being in a room by myself. <laughs> you know? Going, learning certain skills and practices and then going and, you know, I didn't have my kids or my wife and, and, and I was just there, bored, right? Like, what do you do with this space? And look, I'm not offering that up because you can't really, unless you're going to be a monk, you can't live in that kind of intensity all the time, can you? You can't. I mean, you just can't. I'm not going to live in that sort of space all the time. You're not going to live in that sort of space all the time. But what it did teach me, and I'm still in this ongoing process of learning, is that we, we do have immense opportunity, no matter what our circumstances and situations, we have these opportunities to carve out little moments of that kind of intensity. Whether you're, you're carving out a Sabbath day a week or, or a Sabbath afternoon or whether you're going to carve out a day to, to fast uh, so that you can just kind of like really focus in or you know, you're going to have rhythms during your day to, to, to read and to pray and to write out what's going on in you. I'm, I'm simply just saying what, what practices do you have in your life for honest examination? And if, if you're meeting with somebody, one person, two people, a, a small group, whatever it is, and, you, and, you're, and you're saying to yourself, yeah, I meet and, 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 and we all share things. Okay, that, that's, that's wonderful. But then ask yourself, is there actual real vulnerability in that space? Is there real vulnerability of opening up and saying, hey, there's, there's incongruence in my life? Because there's real power in there. There's real power in that space of real honesty. Make no mistake, God is welcoming us all in Christ by His grace. But if we're not willing to be honest and to examine ourselves, just knowing things about God and His grace won't change us. It requires our part of opening up to Him. And so that's my invitation for us as a church today and moving forward, always, Like when you come to the bread, when you come to the cup, take the time. Do a little practice of it today, of just sitting here. We did this a couple weeks ago where we looked at Psalm 139. Just a moment to say, God, search me and know me. 
Is there anything grievous, offensive in me? Like, just make it known to me. The Lord loves to do the very thing that he wants to do when you ask him. And he wants, he wants us to examine, and he wants us to be honest, and he wants us to welcome, welcome us in and our vulnerability. But when we come here, I know sometimes we can be numbed out uh, by our week, and we can be tired and overrun and all of that. And I know that sometimes we just have to like give ourselves to the rituals because, man, I just got no feelings left. I, my nerves are shot because of my week or my month, and I get that. And it's really hard. And you don't, I, don't want to steep, I don't want to heap a bunch of guilt on you. I just want to say, when you have the opportunity, when you have the moment, just that little window of opportunity to be self-aware and reflective, take advantage of it. Don't squander that opportunity. And so do that this morning before you come forward to, to, to participate in communion here. It's just you declaring Jesus as Lord. There has to be an honest confession in you. That's not a part of your life then communion, we ask you take, just stay in your seat and not participate because honesty is paramount. And so we do that today and we continue to do that moving forward. Um, and, and take whatever time you need. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you this morning uh, for this word. As we look at your son in his anger, I ask that it stirs us in a a very particular way. I ask that it stirs us up to reflection, that it stirs us up into honesty and self-examination, and that we remember that there is just so much mercy and grace found in you. And that should compel me to not hide in ritual, to not hide in tradition, to not hide in whatever things that I've got going on, but instead to just lean in and open myself up to you. If that can't happen in this moment right now, God, for, for, for me or for my brothers and sisters here, I, I ask that it can happen sometime this week. And that's okay. What I see in, in the story here, God, is that you're incredibly patient with us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his body and his blood. Thank you for the opportunity for a new beginning. Thank you for an opportunity to have life with you. You are a great hope and you are a great peace. We love you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.